Good morning. Uh, my name is Josh Kubler. I've been graciously invited by Bryce and by Stephen to come and share the word with you this morning. Um, I am a pastor, associate pastor of teaching and community groups at Redeemer Baptist Church in Olive Branch, and uh, I've known Bryce since the seminary days, uh, back when he had a faux hawk, and um, I've known Stephen for almost half of my life. We met at Northwest uh, Mississippi Community College back when Stephen was this wild, short-haired college student. You would not believe how short, I mean, his hair was like this short, and now it's not. It is not that short anymore. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. It is completely different. So um, I'm thankful for both of them, and I'm thankful for you here at Vintage Church, a partner, uh, brothers and sisters in the gospel. And uh, I'm just honored to be able to be here uh, and to preach the word. And so when Bryce uh, messaged me and said, hey, do you want to come preach during the series? Here's what we have available. Uh, These are the different topics we're going to be covering. Um, I said, wait, so the Jesus one isn't taken? And he said, he said, no. I said, I want that one. Uh, that's my favorite. Uh, so we are going to discuss this morning the king and the kingdom within the Psalms. Now, this is a very broad topic, so we have a lot to get to. So we are going to dive right in. I'm going to pray, and we'll get going. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here to hear from your word, Lord, to see your gospel, Lord, and not just in the New Testament revelation, but revealed through your Psalms as well, God. And I pray that this morning you would enlighten us, that you would help us to appreciate and understand more and more the glories of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ in new ways that we would ascribe to you all honor and glory and praise that is due your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, the kingdom and the king within the Psalms. Um, We've got to start somewhere before we really get going. Uh, And and what we have to start with is biblical theology. Now, you've probably heard of something called systematic theology. It's a really thick textbook that they give you in seminary that all pastors have read and know all about this systematic theology. It breaks up different ideas that are found in the, in, in, in the Bible in terms of theology and doctrine and how the church functions and what we believe and things like that. Well, biblical theology starts with the Scripture. It has as its core and as its root what is the story, the narrative of the text. Because I don't know about you, but when I first got saved, I didn't get saved until after I graduated high school. I started going to uh, an established, traditional, rural First Baptist Church, which I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for the fact that it was there and that I got, was able to get plugged in there. But, but one of the things that, that I found out were that there, you know, there's 66 books in this, and, and they're all different. There's, there's this author, and there's this book, and there's this book, and there's this book. And it, didn't, it took a long time before I heard, began to hear and understand that this is not all these different set of ideas. That this is not basic instructions before leaving earth. That this is, this is one collective story. The story of God's redemptive plan for the world. And the center of that story is Jesus. So, so when we look at, we, we study the Psalms the same way we study all of Scripture, hopefully. First of all, there are two contexts for every text, for every part of Scripture. First of all, there's the grammatical, historical context. 
The grammatical historical context. Now this is a micro view. So as, you're, as you open your Bible and you turn to a chapter and a verse, it is immediately what you are reading on the page. The verses and chapters surrounding the context of the book itself, the original author's intent. So it places the text in its historical and linguistic setting in order to discern the immediate intent of the human author. It's absolutely necessary to have the grammatical, historical context. This is what Tim Keller says about it. We must use every tool we have to discern what the original author meant to say to the original readers of the text. We study the use of language. We study the historical context. We put the text in the context of the whole book and so on. It is faithful and necessary for us to examine the Word of God in the grammatical, historical context. But on its own, it is insufficient. On its own, it is insufficient. Because we have, as Christian believers, the benefit of the New Testament. Now, around 1998, um, the sixth sense came out. You remember the sixth sense? All right. So I saw the sixth sense in movie theaters. Synopsis, in case you're behind on 20-year-old movies. The Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis plays this psychologist, psychiatrist. He's working with this young man, this child, who sees dead people and goes through the whole film. And, and again, I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. I'm going to spoil it right now. Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. The whole time. He was one of the dead people the kid was seeing. It's crazy. So one of the greatest twists in movies and, and you get to the end, and you see this, and you find this out, and you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, what about this conversation that you had? What about when he did this? What about? And, and suddenly, your wheels start turning, so you have to see it again, obviously. And then when you see it the second time, you are looking at it entirely differently because you know the ending. Like, you understand, okay, well, this is, and you start to view everything differently within the film. That's how we read the Old Testament. We know the ending. Okay? So we read it differently than we would otherwise. And so we have what is called the redemptive historical context. Now, this is a macro view of Scripture. We're not just zooming in on one verse. As we read the Scripture, we are considering the idea of the Scripture as a whole. The narrative, the story that the Scripture tells of creation, fall, restoration through Christ Redemption through Christ and restoration of the world. The text place in the entire Bible, which has its purpose, the revelation of Christ as the climax of all of God's redeeming activity in history. This is what Tim Keller says about this context. We must not only ask, what did the human author intend to say to his historical audience, but also why did God inscripturate this as a way of pointing to the salvation of his son? We should absolutely read the Psalms in light of their immediate context. But should we only read the Psalms in light of their immediate context? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And you shouldn't take my word for this. I hope you don't ever take the word of whoever stands up here just because they say something. So I want to appeal to a higher power. Let's see what Jesus said. Seems fair. 
Luke 24, he, this is the road to Emmaus after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he's appeared to Mary and the other women, after they've gone back and said, he's here. There are disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus saunters up to them. They don't know who he is. They don't recognize him immediately. But they begin to discuss these things, and he says in verses 25 through 27, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus preached the gospel from the Old Testament to those disciples. And then if you go down to verse 44, he appears to the group of disciples again. In case, there was, in case we, weren't, we weren't leaving, well, that didn't say Psalms. Let's see, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus himself says that the Psalms speak of him and that he is fulfilling and has fulfilled and will fulfill what they say. There's this beautiful little verse in between those. It's those two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus, and they say, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scripture. And I was talking to a friend last night, and I I was saying, what an incredible and perfect description. When when someone first began to explain to me this historical, redemptive narrative that runs throughout Scripture, to, to look at and look through the lens of the Gospel, look through the lens of Christ in everything that we read, and my heart burned within me. It changes everything. It changes how you read the text. It changes how you view things. It is foundational. Now, let me give you an example of how this plays out. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read quickly because I've got to read a lot of Scripture today. So listen quickly. Here we go. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my, at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now, within those 13 verses, the author of Hebrew quotes all in reference to Jesus, the Son of God. Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 97, Psalm 104, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, and Psalm 110. This is how New Testament believers read the Psalms. Now, if you look those verses in their individual context within those Psalms, detached from the New Testament, you would never say necessarily, oh, that speaks of the Messiah. Oh, that speaks of Jesus. But understanding and looking back through that lens, you know and recognize this speaks of God. This speaks of Christ. We must examine the, thaw- the Psalms through gospel-centered, Christ-exalting lenses. Yes. That is how we read the Scriptures And it's how we read the Psalms. So, in what specific ways do the Psalms speak of the kingdom and the king? We're going to look at four primary ways. We don't have all day, so this is not exhaustive. But hopefully, it stirs our heart that it may burn within us. First of all, the Psalms speak to the coming of Christ. Psalm 132, 11 The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now the psalmist here is referencing the promise, the covenant made between God and David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that from David's lineage there would come a king who would reign and rule on the throne and his reign would be forever, forevermore. This is referenced in Luke chapter 1. The pronouncement of Gabriel to Mary that she was going to have a child. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, if we only look at Psalm 132.11 through a grammatical historical lens, not the redemptive historical lens, then we're left very lacking. Because what happened with David? David ruined everything. David's sin led to the divided kingdom, which led to the fall of Israel, which led to victories by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and eventually the Romans. And by the time Christ came along, there's no king, there's no semblance of a king, there's nothing close to a king, there is no uh, lineage or heir who is ruling on the throne forever. So if, if we're only looking grammatically at it, if we're not looking in light of the New Testament, then, then God is a liar. And, and let me be the first to tell you, in case you're not sure, I'm sure you are, God is no liar. Amen. He is no liar. He is speaking of the King to come. 
This is a messianic prophecy. All your earthly kings are going to fail you. But there is one coming who will not fail. Whose kingdom is eternal. Who will rule and reign over all. This promise is far greater than another fallible earthly king. It's a promise that there's another to come who is altogether different. The Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will not only rule justly, but will bear the burden of his people's sins. Now, in light of Christ, look at Psalm 89, verses 29 through 36. Let this pour over you in light of the gospel and the good news we have therein. Verse 29 of Psalm 89. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, they didn't, they don't. We don't. Then... I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And he did. Through a cat of nine tails and an old cross. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring, the coming Messiah, shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. The Psalms speak to the coming of Christ. And they also speak to the kingdom of Christ. In the Psalms, we get this beautiful picture. There are actually multiple, multiple pictures of the kingdom of Christ. Let me read a couple to you. First of all, Psalm 103, which we prayed through this morning together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And we've got Psalm 145, 10 through 20. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom 
and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And tell of your power to make known, excuse me, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. What is this kingdom like? The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And when we view this promise of the kingdom in this redemptive historical context, what we know is this, that, that in creation God established perfection. That Adam and Eve walked perfectly in union with God in the garden. That they had responsibilities. That they had an understanding of who God was. That that everything existed in harmony as it should be. And then we get to Genesis 3. Man decides that he would like to be like God. And so Eve and Adam subsequently rebel. Take a bite from the apple, deceived by the enemy. And at that moment, every ounce of harmony was broken. Everything as it should be was now shifted. They did not perfectly reflect God any longer, nor did the creation. Sin entered the world, and with it, sickness and disease and death and strife and envy and malice Jealousy, pride, envy, and death. And so we skip forward and we see Jesus arrives. The king has come. And what happens in his earthly ministry? Everywhere he goes, things shift back. So illness, disease, he heals the lame. He makes the blind to see. Where there's strife and malice, he brings reconciliation through forgiveness. Think about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who every Jew would have hated. Jesus comes to her and brings the good news of the gospel, the water, the living water for her to drink. Shifts it back. Death. The centurion's daughter, Lazarus. Lazarus. He undoes it. There are these pockets and these pictures everywhere Jesus goes where his ministry takes what has been broken and mends it. And then the penalty of sin. The wrath of of God poured out against it. He takes it ultimately on the cross. We love the Jesus Storybook Bible in our house, and I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in that book. She says, he makes all the sad things come untrue. 
That is the ministry of Jesus in His time on earth. But that, it's a picture. It happened, but not in fullness. This, these images, these ideas that we get out of the Psalms regarding God's kingdom, they are foretelling a greater kingdom that reaches beyond the expanse of one man's ministry. The fullness of the kingdom that is promised in the Psalms is actually portrayed in Revelation. As John receives his vision toward the end of the book, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, the most encouraging passage in all of Scripture that I cling to. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When we see this picture of the kingdom, when you read about the kingdom in the Psalms, you see the glimpses of it in Jesus' earthly ministry, but you know and you have a hope in the fullness of them when He returns. When all of the sad things come untrue. When sin is wiped away fully and wholly. When the kingdom is not just inaugurated, but fully consummated. There will be no more tears. No more pain. No more cancer, no more war, no more famine, no more homeless children, no more starvation, no more hurt in any way. Everything that is sad will come untrue. That is what the Psalms are promising us through Christ. So in the Psalms, they speak to the coming of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. They also speak the crucifixion of Christ. You know, in the, in the time of Jesus, there weren't these, this handy psalm book with numbers. And so they would recognize psalms by the first line. That would often be the title of the psalm. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, close to death, in every ounce of agony and pain, and cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He's not just saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is referencing Psalm 22. And every Jew there who was familiar with their hymn book would have recognized exactly what he was saying. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They may make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, within the grammatical historical context, this is quite a psalm of lament. The the psalmist is expressing and explaining this unbelievably torturous experience that anyone who had to endure it would feel much less than a man. But within a redemptive historical context, This is not a psalm of lament. This is the psalm of lament. The psalm of Christ on the cross. Now, to clarify, there are plenty of allusions, allusions, not illusions, allusions in this text. Plenty of blatant explanations that are then fulfilled. Casting of lots for clothes no breaking of the bones that we can talk about here. But, but let me give you the preeminent one. Crucifixion, the piercing of hands and feet and hanging to a cross, did not exist when this psalm was written. They have pierced my hands and feet. There is a description of, of the very method by which Christ will die. In this psalm, before it was ever even in the world. Jesus referenced this psalm, yes, because He was enduring the wrath of God, He was bearing the burden of sinful man 
upon the cross. But he also referenced this psalm because it was his psalm from all those years before. The psalms give us one of the clearest pictures of the crucifixion account. They speak directly to it. And so, within the Psalms, we see them speak to the coming of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and finally, the very kingship of Christ. Now, when we read of the king in the book of Psalms, big K king, we often think of the generic God, big, big G God, that's the king. But when we read in the Psalms, I hope that we will read purposefully and understandingly and within the historical, redemptive historical context and know that this is not just big God, big G God. That this is the Son who is seated on His throne at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all. That is who we are reading of in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Psalm 96, 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Christ is the reigning king over everything. And in Psalm 146, we get this wonderful picture. Verse 3, the psalmist implores, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, that being a mortal human being, not the son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. When I consider the kingship of Jesus, the kingship that's even displayed in the Psalms, I think about Paul's words in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Greek word means held on to. 
but he humbled himself. Being found in human form, took the form of a servant, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has greatly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is your King. The one who gave up his heavenly throne, his heavenly glory. To endure a death we cannot imagine. To rescue you from your sin and to make all the sad things come untrue. To reverse the effects of the fall. To fix all of it. To the glory of of God the Father. That's your King. He's been promised to us. We have seen Him and heard of His works. And as we consider the eternal picture of the Psalms, as we see the promise of the coming of Christ, the promise of the kingdom of of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and the very kingship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I think it's probably appropriate that we follow the advice of Psalm 146 there at the very end in verse 10. Praise the Lord. He alone is worthy. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious and gracious gift You have given us in Christ Jesus. As we study Your Word, Lord, through the Psalms, through the Torah, through the prophets, the poets, God, in the epistles, and the works of prophecy, may we look at all of it through the lens of Jesus Christ. May we see and understand the beauty and the glory and the promise that we've been given. As we examine the Scriptures, could we be reminded of Paul's promise, 2 Corinthians, that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And for this body, as they continue to work through the Psalms, may they always have one eye on the cross and the empty tomb. Lord, stir up in us affection for Jesus Christ, for who He is, for what He's done. He came, He lived, He died, He lives again. And Lord, oh, what great joy and hope there is in the fact that He is coming again. Not as the suffering servant, 
but as the reigning ruler of all to make all the sad things come untrue. We thank You for Your Word and for Your work. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.